This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Today in Agronomy on KFILAM AM 1060 with Pioneer Field Agronomist Allie Wise and Josh Schaffner. Here's Josh and Allie. Good morning, Southeast Minnesota. It's December 2nd, 2020, and this is episode 50. Uh, Allie, kind of a milestone there. Um, been an extremely busy stretch here, uh, even though harvest wrapped up early. Um, you know, a lot of growers making decisions for next year, and you and I have been out kind of making the rounds, uh, following up with the growers, talking, you know, how was this year's crop, doing a lot of planning, um, positioning, and, and getting some... Um, visits in across the area. But um, I thought today we'd spend a little bit of time, Allie, talking about, you know, what have been some of the common conversations, you know, not so much, you know, what are we out there talking about? What have the growers been asking us, you know, from a question standpoint, as they look at planning for next year, I think we'll start um, with soybeans, Allie, and um, I'll kind of just pitch this to you. You know, I think one of the common questions we get from everybody is, um, you know, enlist extend, um, you know, a lot of growers really wanting to go to enlist, but also, you know, also coming off of, I, I planted a, you know, three, four varieties this year and had a record crop. And do I want to, you know, make a complete change and not planting those varieties again? Yeah, I agree. I think comparison of trait options on the soybean side in general have been a big topic of conversation and, you know, a very important one, understandably. Um, on the soybean side of thing, I think for starters, I think it's important to note that I get a lot of questions on, you know, where we're sitting in terms of supply between extend and enlist. And, you know, lucky for us, we have availability of both of those options um, that we could offer a person. But I think in general, when I start to dig into that conversation, I think it's also important to note that the difference between enlist and extend, um, there's a lot of differences in terms of what your specific operation needs. So I think for starters, it's just important to identify, you know, when we look at those goals at the end of harvest in terms of those factors that are driving yield, I think you need to first step between, you know, what is maybe holding me back the most? Has it been the disease package in general, some of the pressure of SCS or white mold in the past, the historically that has thrown me off? Or has it been some of the weed control um, side of things that's maybe setting me back? And I like to just start there in terms of what is our biggest need between weed control and maybe disease pressure, and then start to work ourselves down between the pro and con of enlist um, and extend. As you look at that conversation, Josh, where's maybe the first place that your mind tends to go? Yeah, it's uh, you know very similar approach to you, and and really what it boils down to is um, you know really putting together. You know, we need more than one variety. We, we we really in some cases we we need to look at what's important. Is it white mold SDS? Now on the flip side, if we have growers that are really struggling with weed control, and that's their biggest factor, um, Enlist is extremely attractive. Um, the weed control system there, I think a majority of growers would prefer you know the application and working with that label and the flexibility of it. Um, but on the flip side, you know, when we're we're looking at, um, you know, we still got to put bushels in the tank. And if if we have different concerns, if we're happy with uh, weed control, in some cases, you know, taking a look at, at what the options are, you know, you might be able to build a, a better package for the the operation of having three, four different varieties that, that really fit the mold. And sometimes on the list, you know, we just don't have as much data and it's not as proven. And, um, you know, some producers that, that know these varieties know how to manage them and uh, coming off record yields. Um, is probably keeping some growers in that camp. Still some uncertainty on the weed control, which this could really change, um, you know, depending on, you know, what the state label looks like, which we're, I think we're still awaiting that. I haven't seen that yet, Allie. Um, we've seen the federal side of it, but we're still waiting for the state of Minnesota to, 
to, to give us a guidance on uh, the new Dicamba label, which could have an impact uh, of what direction we go as well. But um, those have been some of the big things and, and we've had some good conversations about that. And and there's a lot of growers going to a list. There's some staying extend, which is great. But um, like you said, we're just fortunate that we got a great portfolio, both options there. And uh, um, it, it puts us in a good spot. Um, Allie, another thing, um, you know, we, we've talked about early beans versus late maturity. Um, we talked about this in other episodes. Um, another thing that, that still comes up quite a bit um, from some growers, what have some of your conversations around uh, kind of picking our maturity has been like this this fall, early winter? I think that's been an interesting conversation because you go back to before we had harvested beans, you and I kind of had a, a conversation on are the early beans or are the later maturities going to be a little bit better? You look at the early maturity beans, they packed on so many uh, flowers early and had really nice pod set all the way to the top. Um, and some of the later beans just kind of got hit in some of that stressier period and maybe didn't fill all those pods all the way to the top. Um, but I think, you know, generally those late rains, they really worked wonders on the soybean crop in general. I think if I look on the early maturity beans, I still think that approach to using them in your system is that early maturity bean planted early still paid in a huge way, both yield wise and just management management wise in terms of getting started on something in the month of, of early September. Um, but I think, you know, later maturity wise, I think those that we were able to keep healthy enough to take a much more advantage of those rains that we were able to capture um, later in August just added a lot in terms of weight of grain to those beans and kept us from having a bunch of BBs that we were harvesting uh, this, this fall. What was kind of your take between the two? Yeah, I've had a couple of different angles this conversation on some producers that that did some early beans uh, and some full season. And and, and one observation I ran into a couple of times was I had uh, um, some questions around, you know, the planting order. And I had some producers that had some really early beans, like a, a 1011. And they actually, they planted the, the late beans first and finished with the early. Now, everything was early this year, which in some cases kind of brought everything ready at the same time. And uh, my only encouragement, if we're going to look at the early beans planted early, that we we always plant early beans first and finish with late ones. So if you're going to plant a 1-1, a 1-5, and a 2-0, I would plant them in that order. And, and really, when you look at the harvest plan, we want to get them harvested right when they get ripe. So when the 1-1's ready, boom, get them. Then the 1-5's ready, then the 2-1's. And that's just a strategy to maximize uh, you know, yield and productivity across the operation. And Allie, when we come back from break, we'll jump in and talk about some of these common corn conversations. Welcome back listeners. So Josh in segment one, we just talked about kind of commonalities of conversations we've had on the soybean side of things um, as we've met with customers post-harvest. Shifting gears here, we're going to focus a little bit more as we dig into corn uh, post-harvest, just things of commonalities in terms of talking points or questions we've had from customers. And I think, you know, arguably on the corn side, I love post-harvest. I like hearing what worked well, what didn't, what are we excited about? You know, what, what are we not? And I think one of the biggest things was in 2020, we were able to have Chrome products on farm uh, in a much larger manner commercially. And so, you know, it was just interesting to talk through what did we learn as we tested these products across a wide range of acres, you know, maybe folks had Chrome and experienced it, or even just the questions from folks that didn't have Chrome and just a little bit curious about what some of our performance uh, data looked like across um, Southeast Minnesota. Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of our our customers and producers that had Chrome, especially corn on corn, I, I think um, just really some awesome results across Southeast Minnesota. And, and that's been a, a really common theme. And, um, you know, and in some ways, I think really, really brought some, you know, maybe unseen yields in, in corn on corn performance and Chrome coming at a great time and also getting paired um, you know, we call the corn revolution with some really great new hybrids, I think was just a, 
the perfect combination to, to really drive and push some performance on, on corn on corn. You know, on the complete opposite side of it, if we had some producers that, that didn't experience Chrome this fall, we're getting a lot of questions about, you know, number one, what is Chrome? And I'm um, hearing a lot about it. Um, really want to try some on my farm. And, and that's really exciting um, along the way as well. So, you know, Chrome is, is a great new combination of traits, Allie. It's not necessarily um, bringing us, you know, brand new technologies, but it's a brand new technology, the way the technology is put together. And it, it really optimizes, you know, by far optimizes the trait. And, and what we kind of like to say, it's it's the most optimized, you know, trait from a, a corn on corn, corn rootworm standpoint. And uh, that's been a lot of fun. And, and that's a good segue, Allie. You know, um, corn rootworm has came up quite a bit in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, number one, uh, as we come east, there's a lot of corn on corn and, and population is up. And, you know, when sometimes when um, we get to the situation too, and uh, our rotated acres, you know, we, we start talking about diapause and, and is it uh, something that we got to worry about and should we be looking at increased control on corn on bean acres? But uh, maybe we'll start a little bit first, Allie, with uh, the pressure, and then we'll talk about some of the traits on, on rotated acres as well. Yeah, I think pressure wise, you certainly probably see a difference in the pressures in terms of as you get east of 52 where you cover Josh and then west of 52 where I cover. Probably the most prominent reason being you look at just the the amount of corn on corn acres, the percentage of corn on corn acres you have is a lot greater than myself as we track a little bit farther west. So I think, you know, your pressures naturally have just shifted a little bit higher. I think your counts um, that you had when trapping fields were, I can let you talk about those were, you know, incredibly high numbers. And I'd say you more consistently saw rootworm feeding across um, your acres east of 52 as we get west, I was picking up more randomized pockets that have just started to to catch our attention in terms of the control we need as we move forward. But I can let you talk about what you saw east of 52. Yeah, no, no, you covered it just well, uh, extremely well. And um, yeah, the corn on corn, you know, we probably have a little higher percentage of corn on corn acres to the east in long range in some cases. And that's where we're seeing population spike. And um, I think it's good to see um, you know, it's twofold. I think a lot of growers are really going to take this serious and really look at some rotation, try to crash these populations. The soybean market is favorable for that coming off a good bean year. Um, so I think we're going to make some strides from management uh, of trying to get a little rotation to be strategic about it. And then, um, you know, I mentioned too, and I had a conversation about this yesterday morning with the producer about, you know, what should we do about the corn on beans? Should we be concerned? And should we look at traits? Should we look at, you know, um, not using traits. And I think that's a good conversation, Allie, that uh, a lot of producers are trying to mull over right now. Yeah, I think, I mean, it is an interesting question, but I look at on a corn on bean rotated acre, if you've not yet identified a reason to need a fully traded option um, coming out of that bean year, coming back into corn, um, I would prefer to see the lesser traded version on that acre, just because if we are using the fully traded uh, version on that corn on bean acre and on our corn on corn acres, that's just another time that those acres are seeing um, that traded version. And so that can contribute to pressures rising. I think you probably talked through that a little bit more in depth than I just did, but what's your- Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, and um, you know, it if we don't suspect a diapause problem, which it's hard to predict. So that, that is something we gotta remember when we talk about this, predicting extended diapause on a corn going on a soybean rotation it is hard to predict. With that said, you know, I, I don't think where I'm seeing broad scale you know, widespread issues with that. And the nice thing about not putting the traded acre on, then we get the bean year and the corn year. So that acre is getting two years, not, you know, not being exposed with the trait, which I think is really good stewardship and uh, really helps longevity of the trait. Um, so that's a good thing. And, and the other side of it is that, you know, I have some growers also asking, well, we've had so much corn pressure to the east, should I be doing it just because there's a lot of beetles around? 
in, in my opinion, it's the same thing. No, uh, their risk of diapause is low because they're not in a 50-50 rotation. They've had maybe four or five years of corn coming back. So the sequence isn't there. And on the flip side, usually, you know, rootworm pressure will stay isolated to the field. The pressure varies field by field, not just by a geographical area. Um, so as long as we had beans, we crashed that population. Um, I'm still suggesting using, um, you know, a non-rootworm traded product on those corn on bean acres, but, but all good points. And, and it's an important thing because there's some pretty big dollars at stake, right? I mean, doing that costs a lot of money and we also want to make sure we, we protect these traits and uh, have them as long as we can. But, um, well, good conversation, Allie. Uh, episode 50 in the books, kind of exciting. And uh, we'll be back next week to talk about a whole lot more about agronomy in Southeast Minnesota. You've been listening to Today in Agronomy on KFILAM 1060. If you've missed part of the show or want to hear more, check out the show page at kfilradio.com or with the 103.1 KFIL app. Stay connected with Allie and Josh on Twitter. It's at Allie G-Wise, W-I-S-E, and at Josh Schaffner. Submit your questions for the show. Tune in next Wednesday for the next Today in Agronomy on KFIL AM 1060. We'll see you at 11 a.m. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.